Equine health is our business, horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here, we will have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the EquiConnect Equine Podcast, brought to you by McKee Panel Equine Services. I am one half of the normal hosting team. Unfortunately, uh, Karen Fell can't join us today, but I am here, Kyle Goldie. Uh, and today's episode is one uh, we have been looking forward to for some time. We have a very special guest, Dr. Tara Richards, who is here to discuss the fascinating topic of equine ophthalmology. Dr. Richards, welcome. Would you like to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I grew up in Northern Ontario. I have a long history of being involved with horses. I started riding when I was about eight years old and participated in Pony Club and the local club shows, evented kind of through my teenage years, and then more recently tried my hand at a new discipline and I'm working on learning the ins and outs of reining. I've wanted to be a vet since I was a young age and I actually knew I wanted to focus on ocular disease in animals at that time as well. I'm a boarded veterinary ophthalmologist and what that means is that I have completed vet school, a graduate degree, as well as a residency in ophthalmology. And my ophthalmology residency consisted of three very intense years where I focused on ophthalmic training exclusively. That means that I was charged with learning all about the eyes of all the species but humans. And then at the end of that, I had to sit a three-day, essentially, exam. The first day was a written day. The second day was what we call images, where we look at image after image after image and answer questions. And the final day was a practical day where we examine animals and also do surgeries. I've been practicing veterinary ophthalmology since 2007, and in 2019, I decided to put more time and focus into developing the equine ophthalmology side of my practice. So I currently offer both medical and surgical ophthalmology services for equine patients. Amazing. That's uh, that's quite a resume. That's <laughs> yes. uh, that's great. Yeah, I remember when I first met you, you were uh, doing an enucleation. <laughs> on a on a horse and that's a, a long long time ago so uh so that was with uh dr dr whalen i believe i'm glad we made a good impression <laughs> oh yeah 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 absolutely absolutely that's exactly what i what i tell um my clients i have some some general training uh like every veterinarian does in uh in ophthalmology but i you know that when it when it comes time to uh to send a case for a referral to uh someone like yourself a board certified ophthalmologist i always say like you know i went to vet school for 4 years dr richards went to school for another 4 years or 3 years i guess <laughs> yeah. it is just for eyes you know so if you've got an eye problem that's that's who you have to see well thank you the services you uh you provide are priceless they're complicated cases they're they're really complicated cases so Let's get into it. Why don't we start with talking a little bit about just the general anatomy of of the eye, and then we can kind of build things from there. How does that sound, Dr. Richards? That sounds like a great idea. I think knowing a little bit about the eye will help us understand the answers to the questions that are coming. The eye is a really unique organ, uh, very interesting and something that obviously excites me a lot because I've spent a lot of time looking at it and studying it. But it's an 
immune privileged site. And what that means is that it reacts differently than other organs to invaders such as bacteria. And it takes a lot longer to heal compared to other parts of the body. If you think of the eye as a globe or a circle with two chambers, one in the front and one in the back, there's a lens that separates those two chambers. And so it's what focuses light when it comes into the eye. The lens is kind of in the center of the eye. And these chambers are encased in like a fiber shell. The front part is what we call the cornea. It's what you touch if you put a contact lens on your eye. And the back part is comprised of a shell that is made up by three layers. So the sclera, which is the white part of the eye that you can actually see when we're looking at each other. And inside of that, there's a vascular layer. And then inside of that, there's the retina. The iris kind of extends forward from that vascular layer and hangs down essentially like a curtain in front of the lens and it meters light for us. That's a very brief description of the eye. Obviously, probably easier to look at a picture, but hopefully you can picture that in your mind's eye. Yep, makes perfect sense. I get it. Yeah, as you say, it's it's really essential to, to understand just the basic structure of the eye before we can understand what can go wrong. Why can things go sideways so quickly with eyes? We always treat eye issues like emergencies. Why is that so important? Yeah, that's a very excellent question. And I think a lot of times these cases are urgent and should be seen fairly quickly. And I think the answer to that is twofold. The first stems a bit from the anatomy that we already spoke about. So unlike other organ systems, there's very little reserve in an eye. And reserve means extra parts or extra tissue, if you will. So for example, if you have a corneal ulcer, the cornea is about a millimeter thick. So this means that if you've got an area of loss already, there's not a whole lot left to lose. The second reason stems from the fact that ocular signs are often very subtle. And so by the time we see those signs, a lot of times there's been progression of the disease that we haven't been aware of. And so a good example of this that I always use for clients is that uveitic horses or horses with uveitis will sometimes only simply show a change in their eyelash position. And that is something unless you're trained or unless you have had experience with a horse with uveitis in the past that can often easily be missed. And then by the time we actually see the very overt signs, we're a bit further down the road, which means that we need to intervene in a more timely manner. Okay, that makes sense. I often explain to clients that there's just so much more capacity for all of our other tissues in the body to, to heal than, than there are for the, the eye. It's such a special organ that in order to function properly, it just doesn't heal very quickly. Yeah, you're exactly right. Dr. Richards, I'm sure there's, there's lots of times when you get to appointments, whether that you're seeing them as a, as a first opinion or the third opinion kind of thing. <laughs> what do you wish people knew? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. I've spent a little bit of time thinking about it. I think what I wish people knew is that the earlier I can see things, the more likely I can affect positive change for that horse. Once the damage is done inside the eye, a lot of times the goal then shifts to preventing further damage and saving and keeping as much of the vision as we can, because a lot of times I can't actually undo what has already been done. This doesn't mean that I need to be the first line for treatment. As you said, you know, most veterinarians have a good basic knowledge of eyes and can at least start with an ophthalmic exam and go from there. But I think what it means would be that if we're not getting somewhere, especially if it's changing very quickly, 
referral is something we should probably consider sooner rather than later. I think one of the most disheartening things for me as an ophthalmologist is when I see a horse for the first time and for whatever reason the disease is so advanced, there's very little I can offer them at that point. Now, sometimes that has nothing to do about the timeliness referral and more to do with the nature of the disease, because some of these diseases, unfortunately, especially with the first eye, have clinical signs that you're not going to see right off the bat. And by the time we do see them, then the disease is advanced. But that means then with the second eye, we can be a little bit more proactive and establish wellness exams, et cetera, to follow that horse a little bit more closer so we can intervene and actually affect positive change for the remaining eye. Okay. Yeah. Makes, uh, makes perfect sense. I think, uh, healthcare professionals in all walks of life would agree that, um, things are generally seen sooner than, than later because it doesn't seem to matter whether it's a broken bone or a, a tumor or, or whatever. If you, if you have concerns, it's a lot better to bring it to whatever relevant health professionals attention sooner than later, um, because there's so much more that can be done in the early stages than the later ones. So exactly. Yeah, I, I know exactly how you feel. So uh, Dr. Richards, why is an exam or a diagnosis so important before treatment? You know, why can't we just treat all eyes the same and cross our fingers and hope for the best? <laughs> so empirical treatment or treating kind of without a, a diagnosis, as you were saying, is quite risky with the eyes because the eye really only has a couple of ways to show it's unwell, meaning that your classic signs of squinting, redness, discharge or cloudiness are fairly nonspecific, meaning if you called me and said my horse is showing these things, I can give you probably a list of four or five things that that horse could be experiencing. And in many cases, the treatment for one would be contraindicated if it had something else. And so it is very important to have a detailed ophthalmic examination and to have an idea of where we need to start with treatment so that we don't do harm. I think one of the scariest things for me as an ophthalmologist to hear in a history from an owner is that I had some steroid cream left over and the horse is now squinting. So I started it, Doc, because it helped the last time. And I know that that intention is good and that they're trying to help their horse. But steroid cream is one of the things that is the riskiest thing to just give your horse. I've seen many melting ulcers and in some cases ruptured eyes that have resulted from the application of medications like a steroid without a proper exam. And so while it's super tempting to do that, if you've got that medication there, I would very much discourage people from just starting something like a steroid cream. Absolutely. I feel like that's uh, one of the first lessons in uh, ophthalmic pharmacology is just you do not put steroids in an eye if there's any suspicion of a, of a corneal ulcer. I know yeah. for the exact same reason you've uh, you've given, oh, doc, you know, I had this, uh, it was prescribed the last time, so I just started on it. So often I almost think it'd be better if, if people just discarded eye meds uh, after a given case has been treated just so that there isn't that temptation to just try something just because uh, the, the wrong meds in the wrong eye could really cause a problem. Yeah, that is actually something that I have recommended in some cases just to be cautious because sure. yep. even I deal with that. You're kind of like, well, I've got this left over. I wonder if it would work this time, but eyes aren't a really good thing to do that with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. There's lots of common ocular conditions that we see. We see a lot of corneal ulcers. I would say that's probably 
the most common thing that uh, that equine veterinarians uh, see. And I often explain, and as it was explained to me, horses are sort of the poster children for eye ulcers or corneal ulcers because their eyes protrude from their head somewhat, uh, mm-hmm. unlike other species where the, the orbital bones uh, help to protect the eye and everything like that. Those are pretty common cases, and I'm sure anybody who, who has a horse has, uh, has dealt with those. But one condition that seems to kind of go under the radar until uh, it's too late is the condition uveitis or moon blindness. And it's certainly one of those things that um, it would be great if, if people knew a little bit more about and how it would relate to their specific horse with particular uh, emphasis on breed. So uh, Dr. Richards, what can you tell us about uh, uveitis slash moon blindness? Great. Yeah, I think uveitis is a really good topic to chat about. I think you could probably do a whole podcast on that. And so I guess to start, I would say I would clarify the difference between uveitis and moon blindness. Uveitis is a general term that means inflammation of the vascular layer of the eyes. So the choroid and the iris that we talked about kind of at the beginning of the podcast. It can be related to many different things like trauma, systemic disease, so various cancers, infectious diseases, as well as immune-mediated disease. Whereas moon blindness is what most horse owners think of when they hear the word uveitis. It is a layman's term that describes the clinical syndrome of equine recurrent uveitis. Equine recurrent uveitis affects about 3 to 15% of the horses worldwide, and it's probably the number one cause of blindness in the horse. There's definitely certain breeds that are overrepresented. I think the first one that would come to mind for me would be an Appaloosa, but draft and draft crosses and warm bloods, and now in some cases, quarter horses are overrepresented in the breeds that I would see with recurrent uveitis. There's various different presentations if we're speaking specifically to the recurrent uveitis syndrome. The first would be the classic presentation, which is what most horse owners are going to think about. They're going to think about their horse coming in with squinting, swelling around the eye, discharge, cloudiness, a very small pupil. And in some very severe cases, you can have an eye that fills up with blood. But there are two other clinical presentations that are actually, in my mind, more concerning because if you have either posterior segment recurrent uveitis, which means inflammation of the back chamber of the eye, or if you are an insidious uveitis, meaning there's not a lot of clinical signs associated with that inflammation, it's a very low-grade smoldering inflammation that does quite a bit of damage and they don't tend to present to me until very late in the disease. So there's kind of three presentations. The treatment will depend on the clinical stage at which they present to me. And it can range from medical management to surgical intervention. And surgical intervention can span from things like procedural things like injections into the eye placement of implants to control inflammation and to in the final stages of nucleation or eye removal for humane reasons. We would tailor the treatment approach based on the exam findings, the stage of the disease, as well as the client's goals and finances. If you want to talk more about Appaloosas and uh, and how Appaloosas relate to recurrent uveitis, that would be awesome. Yeah, so Appies are definitely a special case and unfortunately They are similar to uh, other breeds and animals that we see with disease because of human 
intervention, if you will. So we've chosen appies because of their beautiful, fun coat pattern. And in doing that, we selected for some of the leopard spotting in these guys. And they've shown that Appaloosas have two actual ophthalmic conditions that are related to the leopard spotting complex allele. And we would call that LP. So these are genes that dictate the amount of white and the spotting that happens on the white in an Appaloosa. And if you carry two of these copies, so one from mom and one from dad, then this individual will have what we call congenital stationary night blindness. So that's a condition that is very separate from uveitis. It's characterized by the inability to see in low light or, or very dark light conditions. And so it's an important disease in its own right, separate from uveitis. This would also, I should add as a side note, can be seen in the nabstrupper and the POAs and some of the mini horses that have the same um, pattern in their coat. I was going to ask you. Yeah, that that's great to know. Yeah, so we don't get to see those breeds as often, but the same would hold true for them. Similarly, with equine recurrent uveitis, those breeds would be equally as affected if they carry this LP gene. And so horses that are homozygous for the LP gene, or even heterozygous, meaning you have one copy of the LP gene and is the dominant copy, you would have a higher risk of a developing uveitis. And so if you look at the stats, the Appaloosas have been the most studied for this, and they're eight times more likely to develop equine recurrent uveitis than, say, a horse that does not carry those genes. Now, there are horses out there that do have the LP gene and don't get recurrent uveitis. And that means that we have other either gene modifiers or environmental modifiers that bring on disease. And one of those environmental modifiers that most horse people will have heard of if they've looked at all into uveitis would be leptospirosis. So that's a bacterial agent that is found in the environment, generally in standing water, that horses would drink the water and get exposed to this bacteria. The bacteria has uh, an antigen, so a protein on it, that looks very similar to the retina, which means if the body sees the protein on the bacteria and confuses it with the protein on the retina, then you can end up with the onset of uveitis or inflammation in that vascular layer. This onset, interestingly, is a bit delayed. So if a horse is exposed to leptospirosis, it usually takes about 18 to 24 months to develop equine recurrent uveitis or uveitis within the eye, which means that it's generally not an active infection, if you will. It's something that is a bit of a hiccup in the immune system that causes it to mistarget things within the body. And this isn't unique to apis. There are genetic mutations that they are finding in other breeds that does account for um, equine recurrent uveitis. They're namely studying like the warm bloods, the drafts, and the quarter horses. And the research in that area is in kind of the validation stage. So they've got some candidate genes they can screen for and they have linked those to clinical disease, but a genetic test is not yet available in those breeds. There is genetic testing available through UC Davis uh, for appies though. So you can send in um, samples to their lab and it allows you to know if your horse carries the LP gene. And generally, if you're interested in doing that, my recommendation is that if a horse carries two of the LP genes, or if you're very cautious one, then they probably should have a detailed ophthalmic examination, looking at both the anterior and the posterior segments, so the front and the back of the eye, at least yearly, 
And if you see changes there, then I would say referral to an ophthalmologist in an early manner so that we can intervene and keep vision for as long as possible for these horses. Okay. So Dr. Richards, let's say we have a, an Appaloosa full. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there any form of prevention that, uh, that someone could consider to prevent equine recurrent uveitis in uh, said horse? You know, we're basically starting with a, a blank slate, so to speak. Anything that you'd, you'd recommend outside of uh, regular assessment by an ophthalmologist? Yeah, so knowing that horse's gene status would be something that I would start with if I was going to have an appy and I wanted to keep the eyes healthy because that gives us an idea of their risk. Limiting as much as possible exposure to leptospira or the bacteria that we were chatting about would be also an important piece associated with that. There was a study that was done, and I can't remember the exact uh, date of the study, but it showed that apis with a positive leptospira titer have 100% chance of going blind. So I would say for sure avoiding exposure to that if they can. And again, that's hard because it's an environmental contaminant that's related to ponds and standing water. So maybe putting them out in a husbandry situation where they're not exposed to that. The vaccine piece for leptospira is something that uh, people have looked at. And the most recent uh, equine ophthalmology conference that we could attend in person, they actually had a good presentation that showed that vaccination against that was actually detrimental, meaning it did cause some of those horses to actually develop equine recurrent uveitis. So playing with the immune system. Uh, That's exactly what I was thinking could happen. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I was thinking, you know what, if you give that antigen, whether it's through infection or through vaccination, either way, uh, it's not <laughs> a, a good bit of thing. a challenge there. No, okay, no, good. exactly. So as of yet, there is no vaccination that is safe and good, to my knowledge, to prevent uveitis. So it's more of a gene piece. It's more of a knowing that there is risk associated with this horse and having it examined routinely and being able to... In- intervene in a more timely manner because appies especially are one of the more heartbreaking cases for me to see because they'll come to me with very advanced disease because in general they tend to have insidious recurrent uveitis meaning they don't show clinical signs they show up as a blind 18 year old horse is usually the presentation so they've been dealing with disease for probably most of their adult life but are incredibly stoic strong animals and they don't show their clinical signs which means that by the time they get to me a lot of them are either blind and or glaucomatous which means enucleation is the only option they do very well with it but it would be nice to be able to try and help them keep vision we had a chance. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a great recommendation. If you if you've got an appy, Dr. Richard says, have a DNA <laughs> test done. Your your vet would be more than happy to uh to facilitate that. It's not difficult. It would probably be done on hair, I'm assuming. I believe it is hair, yes. So just pull some mane and uh and send it in. And the other one, particularly based on those results, but otherwise keep them away from standing water and other sources of leptospirosis because um, there does seem to be a link there. So yeah, uh, I think that's really, really good information, Dr. Richards. So, okay, so we've talked about uh, Appaloosas. Uh, there's a, another breed. I, I don't know if, if you feel like uh, chatting about it. I, I don't see too many of, uh, of, of them these days, but I have in my past uh, come across them. Rocky Mountain horses are at at risk of a particular condition. Uh, Would you mind talking about that at all? Yeah, sure. So Rocky Mountain horses are 
they have a condition called multiple congenital ocular anomalies and their genetic disease is often associated with a coat color and that coat color has is a chocolate horse with a flaxen mane and tail and forgive me i think it's a silver dapple gene that gives it that color I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. This is you're you're stretching my my knowledge here. <laughs> <laughs> the silver dapple gene is associated with uh, ciliary body cysts, which are cysts, so essentially fluid-filled structures within the eye that live behind the iris, typically. And because that's in close association to where the retina attaches, these horses can get retinal detachments. And then these areas will often reattach. So we get what we call high water marks. So there, there are these curves that typically happen, I believe, nasally from my recollection of pigment that happen in the retina. And in some cases, those retinas don't reattach and you can get retinal detachments that will affect vision, etc. They also can have megalocornea, meaning the cornea can be larger and, and stick out more so that you've got obviously more concerns with damage to the, the cornea itself. And so... That is generally related to the coat color. So most Rockies that I see that have those issues are the really cool looking ones that have the the kind of chocolate coat with the flaxen mane and tail. I haven't seen many others with significant ophthalmic disease. It doesn't m- mean that there aren't any lesser presentations, but usually the worst presentation is associated with that coat color. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I've seen a few of them. And uh my understanding is that uh, that that a lot of those conditions are fairly subtle to detect. So in the uh, in the rare instances where I've done pre-purchase exams on uh, on Rocky Mountain horses that uh, that sort of fit your description, I generally recommend an assessment by an ophthalmologist uh, for those things because I just I just don't have the training to detect them. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. And I think having a baseline, if you're going to purchase a horse like that, to know kind of what is present at that time is very helpful because some of those things can change over time. So obviously the corneal curvature and size isn't going to change, but your retinal lesions in the back of the eye can in some cases. Perfect. Thank you so much, Tara. So can you tell us more about the the services that you as an ophthalmologist can offer? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Goldie, for asking. The equine side of my business is comprised of two components. So there's a teleconsultation side and an in-person side. So on the in-person side of things, I offer both exams and surgery. So with the examinations, we would look at horses for pre-purchase exams. We would look at them for routine wellness exams, like we talked about with the appies, as well as horses with ocular concerns. All of those need referral from your family veterinarian because I would work very closely with them in the management of the case going forward. On the surgery side of things, I can address both eyelid and corneal disease as well as we just recently acquired a laser. So that means that we can actually deal with iris cysts, which is often something that people are concerned about with respect to performance or head shaking. The laser also lets us offer photodynamic therapy, so to treat things like squamous cell carcinoma, which is cancer associated with the eye or the periocular structures, as well as immune-mediated keratitis. So essentially, we can inject dye into the affected area, activate it with the laser, and allow for treatment in more of a minimally evasive way than, say, uh, surgery would do. So we can preserve as much of that tissue as possible. And then we talked a little bit briefly about the 
uveitis side of things, so the cyclosporine implants, various um, interventional therapies like intravitreal injections, et cetera. On the teleconsultation side of things, uh, that service is geared more towards your family veterinarians. So as a specialist, I'm able to offer teleconsultation services to help veterinarians with cases that are in their care. And so I do that uh, through my website, I know Optho. And this requires, obviously, the veterinarian to be comfortable with eyes and have the necessary equipment. And I put that in there because I am a veterinarian, but I don't treat lamenesses or colics. And so it's important to have a discussion um, with your veterinarian before searching out, um, you know, a teleconsultation with an ophthalmologist because you need to make sure that they've got the equipment and the comfort level with the eyes to make that something that would work for us as a team. And in some cases, an in-person uh, visit might be better. Yeah, so that's those are kind of the services that we offer or that I offer. And I offer them out of two locations in Ontario. So one of them is the Ontario Equine Hospital in Toronto. And the other is the McKee Pownell uh, Rehab Facility in Schaumburg. And I'm very thankful to both of those facilities for letting me use space to see horses. Um, it's great to see the horses. And I enjoy working with the teams in both locations. Awesome. Let me tell you, we're, we are so happy <laughs> to have you because before we were able to uh, use your services on a regular basis, it was terrible trying to uh, trying to find uh, an ophthalmologist on an as-needed basis just because like so many veterinary specialties, you guys, your services are in such high demand. There's only so many hours in a day. You have your own lives yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it's it, it's it's hard. So for anyone who doesn't realize, it's a blessing to have Dr. Richards uh, available to us on an as needed basis. It's 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 so great to have Thank her you. services available because our eyes are very very complicated. They're very, <laughs> you can you can do you can do 3 years of residency uh just looking at eyes. It's a very very important specialty and uh and one that um you know, I think my my feeling is that clients are are starting to request to see an ophthalmologist uh, sooner in cases or inquiring about those services and it's so nice for us to be able to say, "You know what? I know exactly who we can talk to." It's great. So, so we really do appreciate you being available to us, uh, Dr. Richards. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. I had a question. So you mentioned that um, when you were doing your residency that you studied the eyes in every species except humans. Yes. So here's the question. What species has the coolest eyes and why? Hmm. I think my favorite species to look at in my residency, which I actually don't get to see very much now, are the birds of prey. Cool. So the falcons yeah, sure. and the owls, they have pretty incredible eyes. They've got a very specialized retina that lets them see, obviously, from far, far away, because a lot of them are looking from far up in the sky, and some of them um, can see infrared. So they use that to see the little mice with the heat signature, basically. Um, wow. So they've got a pretty incredible eye. As far as the neatest eye to look at with respect to color and pattern snakes are pretty neat because a lot of times mm -hmm. their iris is the same pattern as their body and it's it kind of almost blends in they also have oh. a, a it's called a specula it's it's a scale a specialized scale that's protecting the eye it's actually kind of part of their skin so it, it's a really neat adaptation wow but yeah, doing it off the residency is pretty incredible. You can see things from elephants to snakes to horses to cats to dogs. 
and do surgery and all of those things in between. It's a uh, wow. I'm blessed to be able to have um, chosen ophthalmology as my field of work Good for you. That's yeah. great. So to all you budding veterinarians out there, consider a, a specialty <laughs> in uh, in ophthalmology or dermatology for that matter, because <laughs> there is always going to be a, a demand for your services. Always, always, always. There's such complicated specialties and stuff like that. So, yeah, no, that's um, that's great. So I guess some takeaways. If you have any suspicion about pain, discomfort, uh, irritation of a, a horse's or a, a pet in general's eye, you need to call your veterinarian and, and, and arrange for it to be seen. It's difficult for a veterinarian to diagnose something like that over the phone. You really need to make the uh, make arrangements for, for it to be seen by a veterinarian and or an ophthalmologist. Because uh, as as Dr. Richards has uh, has said a couple of times, these conditions they're treated much more quickly and uh, much to a much more satisfactory end when they are seen earlier in the disease course than later. Any other uh, parting wisdom, Dr. Richards? Um, no, I think you've done a good job of summarizing, and thank you very much for having me. And um... Yeah, for trusting me with your horse cases. And I love seeing the horses. So uh, I look forward to seeing others in the future. Great, great. Well, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for all, all the help that you give the, uh, the Ontario equine community and veterinarians alike, and, uh, and also for making the time to, uh, to join us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. So this is uh, Dr. Kyle Goldie signing off. Thank you so much for, for listening to the EquiConnect Equine Podcast. Uh, we'll be back as soon as we can with, uh, with another uh, great topic. Uh, thanks again for listening. Have a great day. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people. Not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.